Well, since the last time we were together, we've learned a few things about our beloved senior pastor. He may be a faithful preacher of God's Word, he may be a good pastor to all of us, but a prophet about the outcome of NFL games he is not. Your Cowboys won, but don't worry, in just a few hours they're going to be joining the Giants out on the, go- on the golf course. So, This is the second to last sermon in our series on John 17. And one of the ways to look at this chapter is that this is Jesus' last will and testament before He is crucified. This is the last block of Jesus' words we have in John's gospel before He goes to the cross. And this last will and testament of Jesus is not a legal document, but rather takes the form of a private prayer to His heavenly Father. But in this private prayer, Jesus provides His disciples about what they most need to know for when He leaves them, because in just a few short hours, He's going to go to the cross. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, but the time will soon come where these disciples will not see Jesus in His body anymore, because He will ascend into heaven, and Christ will be present to His church then as He is now through the Holy Spirit until He returns to judge the living and the dead. So, these last words that we have with Jesus here in John's gospel very important to us. It's amazing to think that as Jesus is approaching death, His concern is for His disciples and all future disciples, that they are well cared for and well equipped for the mission. So, John 17 lays out the priorities of Jesus, and here are some of the ones that we've learned so far in this chapter. We learn that Jesus has authority over all flesh, over the whole world, and that authority was given to Him by His Father, that we are to grow in our knowledge of Him and of our Heavenly Father, that Jesus and the Father are one in their being and in their mission, and that we are to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Last week, amazingly, we heard that the disciples are the Father's gift to Jesus. We are His treasured possession that He never loses hold of. But not only are we the Father's gift to Jesus, what we're going to see this week is that Jesus Christ Himself provides rich and enduring gifts to His church, to His disciples. In whatever time period the church is in or whatever place it is found in the world, Jesus Christ gifts His disciples with everything that they need to fulfill their calling. That's what we're going to see today. And our world needs more than ever what Jesus lays out here in these verses. Listen to how author and psychologist Dr. Mary Pfeiffer assesses the time we are living in. This comes from a piece she wrote just back in June. She says, many of us feel like we are walking through sludge. We live in a time of groundlessness when we can reasonably predict no further than dinner time. The pandemic was a crash course in that lesson. Of course, America isn't Eastern Ukraine, Afghanistan, or Yemen, but nonetheless, we are a lonely, frightened people who have lost hope in the future. 
We are risking losing our vitality and sense of direction. We cannot help others, and we cannot fix anything. I don't think that Dr. Mary Pfeiffer is alone in her assessment. Lots of people from across the globe read this piece, and many commented thanking her, putting to words the things that they had been thinking and feeling all along. While we may have never imagined what we are seeing or experiencing in our time, what we will see today is that Jesus Christ gives His disciples precious, enduring gifts, gifts that will not only revitalize us, but also provide hope and light to the world that we are now living in. So we want to take a look at these gifts, and they come in the form of three words. First, a word of comfort. Second, a word of warning. And third, a word of commission. Let's now look at this first gift, a word of comfort. Jesus Christ says in verse 13, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus gives us the gift of joy. The word used for joy in our passage means to have a deep and abiding happiness, an internal sense of blessedness that overflows. You see, if joy is blossoming in our hearts, then there is no room for the thorns of hopelessness and despair to grow. And as we look at joy in relation to Jesus we discover that one of the aims of Jesus was to bring joy to His disciples about the truth about who God is. Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Not only that, we are to pray in His name to the Father for our joy. So not just what Jesus teaches us is to bring us joy, but the fact that we are praying to the Father is to bring us joy. Jesus said in John 16, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. C.S. Lewis famously said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. And we can see why. Because at Jesus' birth, at His baptism, when He healed those who were oppressed, when He sent His disciples into mission, when He interacted with others like Zacchaeus, even when He showed His disciples His scars in His hands uh, and His side after His resurrection, Jesus Christ brings down the joy of heaven to earth. Where sin brought us ruin, Jesus Christ came to restore our joy. Pope Francis, in a homily entitled The Joy of the Gospel, says this, The joy of the gospel fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. Those who accept His offer of salvation are set free from sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. With Christ, joy is constantly born anew. And how can Jesus do this? How can His joy have such a powerful effect on us? It's because He shares His joy with us. Jesus doesn't just create a happy and pleasant atmosphere for us. He doesn't just inspire us to live lives that are joyful like He is. The exclusive joy He has with the Father 
is now ours through the Holy Spirit. Let's think about this for a moment. Before the universe was made, John tells us that Jesus was with the Father. Not just next to the Father, but face to face with the Father. To be face to face with someone means that you enjoy their exclusive and full attention, and it's reciprocal. For Jesus to be face-to-face with God the Father means that His attention was fixed on the source of everything that was good, everything that was true, everything that was beautiful, perfect love itself. In your experience, what happens within you when you fix your attention on something that is good or true or beautiful? Can you picture that? What is that? That's joy. That's joy. Well, Jesus experiences perfect joy with the Father through the Spirit from before time began. He delighted in the Father who was in the source of everything that was good, the source of all joy. And not only that, He was the source of all joy to the Father. The Son of God loved perfectly and was perfectly loved through the bond of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus Christ tells us today in this passage is that that exclusive fellowship of joy that was was once face to face is now turned towards us because Jesus Christ has brought us into the communion of God. Listen to how he puts it. In John 14, if anyone loves me, he keeps my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Some of you know the pain of being left aside or pushed aside. You were maybe bullied at school. You were overlooked for a promotion or hurt by a spouse. One way or another, you heard this message. You are not needed and you are not wanted. In this exclusive fellowship of perfect love, Jesus Christ wants you to know that you are invited in. He says to you, take my joy. It is yours. You are wanted. And that is absolutely true. But as we just heard, the ones who are admitted into this fellowship are those who keep Jesus' words. And the trouble is, we can't keep Jesus' words because we are double-minded and half-hearted. We can't live up to God's commandments. Our wills are often rebellious, and by nature, we don't live for God, we live for ourselves. But the good news is, that joy is the serious work of heaven. So that we could share in His joy, Jesus Christ goes to the cross to remove our sin and takes the punishment that we deserve so that we can receive from God what it is we most need, the forgiveness of our sins, an abundant life at the expense of of Jesus' own life. Jesus is so serious about our joy that He would give up His own life so that we could be brought into 
the joy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we grow in this joy of Jesus Christ? Well, there are many things that we can do, but all of them relate to the gospel, the Word of God. You see, when we read His Word, or we hear His Word preached, or we pray, or we sing His Word, or we practice His Word in fellowship with one another, this eternal joy springs up in our hearts, and it brings light into the world. In an interview, Christopher Watkin, the author of the book, Biblical Critical Theory, we've mentioned this book already in this sermon series. I promise we're not getting royalties for, for uh, promoting this book. You might think that we are, but, but we're really not. Maybe Pastor Tracy is, I'm not. But In an interview about the book, he says this. He says that what made him open to Christianity, he did not grow up in a Christian home, What made him open to Christianity was seeing the love and joy Christians experienced when they were with one one another. This was the beginning beginning steps of faith for him. The joy of Jesus Christ is one of the best apologetics we have for the faith, especially against the backdrop of cynicism, hopelessness, political battles. It points to another way of life in a confusing world. That's the first gift, a word of comfort, the gift, the gift of joy. Now, here's the second. Jesus gives us a word of warning. We're going to need the joy of Christ because this is what Jesus says His disciples will experience. Verse 14, He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus warns His disciples that the world will hate them. These 11 disciples, Judas excluded, and a great number of the earliest followers of Jesus, in short, are going to experience persecution, imprisonment, and some will even be put to death for their faith in Christ. Hardship in this world as followers of Jesus is what we should expect. From the beginning, this is what Jesus taught His followers. Our society is becoming less tolerant of Christianity, its beliefs and its practices. There are many many who would want it benched or shipped out. With each successive generation, it is predicted that church attendance will fall in our society and fewer people are identifying as Christians in each passing year. What this means for the future of the church here, we do not know. For many Christians, such a change brings about fear. And when we are afraid, we are prone to give in to temptation to deal with our fear. There's a story in the gospel that really captures this quite well for us, I think. You'll remember it. There's a big storm while the disciples were out on the boat with Jesus, and they were afraid. They thought they were going to drown because waves were assaulting the boat. They thought that the waves were the problem, but the waves were not the problem. The fact that they forgot Jesus was on the boat with them was the problem. You see, that's what causes panic, and that's what causes us to fall into accusation and to fear. That's the problem when we forget that Jesus Christ is on the boat with us. As long as Jesus is journeying with us, 
We need not fear the waves because He is the Lord over the waves. So as the church and our society experiences less smooth sailing, we're going to be tempted by the evil one to do things to get out of these hard-hitting waves. And Jesus prays that we would be protected from two particular temptations from the evil one. And here's the first one, adapting to the world. In the face of mistreatment, Jesus' disciples will be tempted to adapt to the world. Now, John uses the word world in a few different ways in his gospel. In this context, he's speaking of the dark and godless destructive ways that reflect the prince of the world, the evil one. So why does Jesus remind us that we are not of the world? Why does he pray to keep us from the evil one? Because he knows that we are tempted to keep our Christian identity as a religious affiliation rather than a distinct way of life. And here are concrete ways we are tempted to adapt to the world. First, in response to the world's aggression, we become aggressive and angry with others. When unjust laws are passed or when Christians are targeted for their beliefs, our hearts can fill with anger towards our enemies. And rather than taking concrete action that brings grace and truth to a situation, we become aggressive and tear down those people. Even if we stand for what is right, we cannot stand for it in the wrong ways. We must do it in a way that resembles the character of Jesus Christ. The morning after the Flyers played the Ducks and the story about the player who refused to wear a pride jersey came out, I was listening to a radio show and one caller after another blasted the player, blasted his beliefs, callers from all around the country men, women of all ages, from all different backgrounds. And when I found myself listening to this, I found myself getting angry about what they were saying, angry about what these people were saying. Maybe you've been in similar situations where you felt that way. And what the Holy Spirit helped me to see was that Jesus Christ did not set me free to respond like that. I'm called to love the truth and to love my neighbor. If I love my neighbor, but not the truth, I have nothing good to offer my neighbor. But if I love the truth, and I don't love my neighbor, my truth has become a lie. God's truth and loving my neighbor are joined together. I need to learn that both are together, and that's what we need to learn, to live in that sort of tension. So that's one way we are tempted to adapt to the world. Here's another way, not in regard to cultural issues, but in terms of our personal living, we can adopt the world's ways in terms of our lifestyle. This way of adapting is not so much because we're afraid of what the world will do to us, but because we're afraid of missing out on what the world has for us. The most obvious adaptation to the world's ways in American Christianity is materialism. The belief that the purchasing of goods is what will secure us a good life. Francis Schaeffer, an American theologian and Presbyterian pastor, says this, the problem with materialism is not so much the desire to be a millionaire, but to have two things, personal peace and affluence to the degree 
necessary to enjoy our peace. Personal peace is the goal that causes us to say, I don't really care too much about the world around me, as long as it doesn't bother me. And the desire for affluence is simply to have enough money to enjoy life to the full. Another way to put this is this. Is our spending and purchasing leaving us no margin in our lives to care for our friends and neighbors in need? What is the impact that our spending and purchasing is having in our discipleship and our ability to serve others? Not only that, when we fill our lives with nice stuff, we leave little room to grow in the joy of Jesus Christ. He has come to give us life to the full, and if our life is filled with other things, there's no room for that joy He wants to give us. Now, the second way that Jesus tells us we're going to be tempted to fall into the ways of the world is that we are going to try to avoid the world. Jesus explicitly prays in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He prays, he prays that because he knows that we will be tempted to remove ourselves from the company of non-Christians, especially if the culture becomes hostile to us. You see, Jesus knows we're going to be tempted to be keeping to ourselves, people who think like we do and live like we do. We only have Christians in our home. We may go to work or school in a Christian environment. We only socialize with other Christians. We only do Christian events. Ever since I've become a pastor, this has become a vocational hazard. And Jesus prays that we would not be taken out of the world. And it seems like sometimes we do our very best to avoid it. And in some ways, that's very understandable because we're afraid that we're going to be contaminated and wrongly influenced by the world, or we're afraid that we're going to be unnecessarily persecuted. Those are legitimate fears. But the truth is that the great distance from the world that we may have means that we don't have an opportunity to bring the grace and light to the world that Jesus Christ loves. You see, the gospel is the power of God that is meant to go further and further into places it is not accepted or not yet known. And there are a lot of places right around here like that. Many people have no idea about who Jesus Christ is. They've heard of Jesus, but they do not know what He has done for them in a real way. They, they haven't seen what He's done because he hasn't, they haven't seen us and our testimony. That's what we are to bring to the world. So we're not to adapt to the world or avoid the world. Instead, we are commissioned to go into the world, and that's what Jesus has for us as a third gift here, a word of commission. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The most famous verse in the Bible is found in John's Gospel, John 3.16. My little daughter is in Awana, and she's memorizing it, and she's repeating it over and over again to me. It's, a, it's really a wonderful thing. I'm not complaining about that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a great verse. It summarizes the Gospel one verse. 
And it's so well known that depending on the camera angle during a sports game, you might even hear someone hold that sign up with that verse on it. It's a good one to know. But after that verse is understood, we really need to start memorizing and understanding John 17, 18. Because John 3.16 is only half the good news. John 17.18 gives us the rest of the good news. And that is, when we believe in Jesus Christ, yes, we have eternal life. And yes, we are saved from the judgment we deserve. But the other part of it is that Jesus saves us so that we can be sent into the world that He loves. It's part of it to share His love with the world that He loves. In other words, we are saved not to be secluded, but to be sent. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. For Jesus Christ so loved the world that He sent you. It's the full message. Now, how are we to understand this commission? Jesus uses priestly terms. In fact, at the header of your Bible in John 17, this this chapter is called the high priestly prayer. He uses priestly language. This is what he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. To be sanctified means that we are to be cleansed and to be set apart for special use in the same way that priests were purified and set, af- and set aside for special use in God's service in the Old Testament. We heard earlier in Exodus 19 this understanding that God's people are to be a priesthood. And what that means is that we are to be a go-between between the people and God. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter. We are to be a priesthood of all believers. We are to be a go-between between the people and God. What that means is this. To the people, we proclaim God's truth and bring God's blessing wherever we go. And to God, that means we offer worship and prayer on behalf of the people. You see, when Israel was brought out of Egypt, they were made a kingdom of priests And they were to represent God's ways before the nations. Likewise, we have been set free from sin, and we have become a priesthood of believers sent by God to our neighbors. We are to bring God's word to them. We are to pray for them. We are to give thanks for them. And we are to bring their needs before the Lord. We are not competing with the world. We're not trying to conquer or coerce them into believing Some, by God's grace, will join the priesthood of all believers. They will come to trust in Jesus Christ, but many may not. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything for them. Regardless if they ever come to believe in Jesus or not, they are the world that Jesus Christ sends us to. And we can represent them before God, and we can proclaim the truth of God to them. It is true that the world may not treat us well, but our response can't be to adapt to the world or to avoid the world. Instead, we have to accept the commission of Jesus Christ because the gospel is such good news that we just can't keep it to ourselves. And regardless of this response, regardless of what people may do, 
No good work that we do in the name of Jesus ever goes in vain. He blesses and honors it all. And what awaits us as we engage this work of Jesus, as we leave this building that is really now paid off not as a sanctuary for us just to worship, but as a mission center to reach the world. As we go out, what we will experience is what the disciples experienced when Jesus Christ sent them out on mission in His earthly ministry. They experienced His joy. That's what awaits us when we accept this commission from Jesus Christ. So these are the three gifts that Jesus gives us for all times. His joy, a word of comfort, a warning and protection from the Father, and His commission to be His representatives in the world. And may God give us the grace to steward these great gifts as we continue in service to Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you have given us words to live by, that you have commissioned us for your service. Lord, forgive us for the many ways that we adapt to the world, that we fall prey to the very things that you spent your life uh, leading against, that you taught against. Help us to live by your truth and grace. Oh Lord, help us not to shrink back from opportunities to bring your name to others who do not know you, to make connections, to deepen relationships with those that you have loved and whom you are calling to yourself. Would you continue to use us for your good purposes, that we would be a priesthood of all believers that faithfully represents you in the world wherever you have called us to serve you, whether it's in secular or Christian environments. Use us to be your witnesses, we ask, that your name may be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.